That better? There we are. When you get old, you don't understand all these things. I thought this morning, you've all heard that Pastor has not been well at all, and he does a tremendous job leading the church. And I thought this morning, before we go into sermon, we should just pray for him. And I think this morning, let's do it this way. I want you to bow your heads wherever you are, close your eyes, whatever you want to do, and spend just a moment or two and pray that God will touch Pastor Mark and bless him. And then I'll kind of gather it together in prayer before we go on. So why don't you spend just a minute praying for Pastor this morning? Father, we gather our prayers together this morning. And it may seem a strange way, but you understand our desire that you will bless Pastor and be with him and encourage him this morning. Lord, touch him with that nail-scarred hand. And as your people have prayed this morning, we just join our prayers together and pray that you will touch him with the nail-scarred hand of Calvary this morning and refresh him, and minister to him, and bring him back to us with the touch of God and the blessing of God as he leads the congregation, overshadow his life today, and may he sense the presence of God even as we pray as a church today for him, that God will bless him and minister to him by the power of the Holy Spirit, because we ask it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. <clears throat> you know, I just had a word from Francis of Assisi. For you. And he says, how well did you preach last week? We all preach day by day and moment by moment. Today, I want to speak to you about living in the light of the future. Slide one will tell you the details. For Slide one tells us the church was given by Pastor Mark four passages of Scripture to consider this morning. He gave us four passages, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to 8, and Titus 1 to 3. And in these passages, if you read them carefully and go over them yourself, you would discover that Paul commends the younger preachers, Timothy and Titus, to make sure that they make Bible truth plain because it matters. It's interesting to note in Luke chapter 16, and you'll remember the story, I'm sure, of the, the rich man and the beggar, and the beggar ended up in Abram's bosom, and the rich man ended up in hell. And the story tells us that the rich man cried out, and I don't know whether it was to Jesus or God, but he cried out, Lord, send someone to my brothers to tell them so they don't come the same place as I'm in. 
And the reply was, and look at the reply in Luke chapter 16 and verse 31. The reply was, he said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced even if somebody rises, rises from the dead, which is a roundabout way of saying exactly the same thing as Paul said to Timothy and Titus, you and I had better pay attention to what the Bible says. The Scripture tells us in these passages that we've been given this morning that we need to accept four challenges that are very clearly presented in these particular portions of Scripture. Challenge number one, and all right, we can go to the second side, please. Challenge number one, live in the light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll all agree, yes, I know Jesus is coming. But I suggest to you that we don't normally take time to live in the light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 11 says, Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, or, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. And notice verse 13, until I come. Devote yourself to public reading of Scriptures, to preaching and to teaching. Until I come. Devote yourself to this. Let me tell you, fresh and new, and it's not new, but we need to be reminded again and again that Jesus Christ is coming again. The first challenge is, are you and I living in light of His coming? Are you day by day living in light of the coming of Jesus Christ? When Jesus Christ comes the second time, we'll be seeing His appearance, we'll be seeing His kingdom, and we will see the visible presence of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. And Paul the Apostle writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18, according to the Lord's own words, I tell you that we which are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with Him in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ differ very greatly. You'll know the story that very few witnessed the first coming of Jesus Christ. Certainly Mary and Joseph knew, and Elizabeth and Zechariah some three months later were aware of the situation. And then, before Jesus was actually born, Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem to be registered because Caesar Augustus, the Roman ruler, had issued a decree that a census must be taken. Now, Caesar didn't have the least idea 
that God had directed him to issue this census. Despite the fact that Micah had foretold of it years and years and years and years before. For Micah said in chapter 5 verse 2, But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though you be little among the nations and the rulers of Judah, out of you shall come to me, for me, one who shall be ruler over Israel, whose origins have been from old even from everlasting. And you know the story. There was no room in the inn in Bethlehem. The relatives, if they were there, certainly didn't welcome them to stay in their home. And Joseph and Mary ended up in a stable with the cattle. And she gave birth, and uh, she was all on her own. And Joseph laid the baby in a cattle trough, a manger. Angels announced the birth to the shepherds, and they immediately went to visit. But have you ever realized that Scripture doesn't mention anyone who went to see, despite the fact that the shepherds told everyone about the events? Go a little further. About two years later, three wise men came who were astronomers who had seen his star, and they came to see this young boy, and they presented him with exceeding precious gifts. But Scripture doesn't tell us of anyone who came as a result of either, despite the fact that when the Jewish leaders were asked by Pilate where the child was to, born, was to be born, they answered immediately, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written in the prophets. But nobody went to check it out. But when Jesus comes the second time, things are going to be different. After he instructed his apostles, Jesus ascended into heaven. And when the apostles looked up and saw him going into heaven, the angels stood by and said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up to heaven? This same Jesus shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. And if you really believe that Jesus is coming again, then ask yourself this question. Am I living today with the knowledge that he might come today? Maybe next week, next month, we don't know, but he's going to come. Are you living with the knowledge that Jesus is going to come? Are you living in the light of his absolutely, totally, completely true fact that he's going to come? Matthew chapter 24 verse 30 says, At that time the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory with power and great might. The Scriptures tell us very, very clearly that we are going to see him when he comes. With a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and probably with him 12 legions of angels who were there when he prayed in the garden before Calvary. Have you ever tried to visualize his coming? That we're going to be seen worldwide. We don't understand how or 
how it's all going to take place. It's going to be seen worldwide, regardless of where people are in the world. They'll see us coming. Moses tells us that Jesus visibly appeared on Mount Sinai after they'd had the exodus from Egypt. And he tells us what's going to happen. And I went back to look at that passage to see what happened the first time. The story goes, and I'll pick it up in chapter 19 of Exodus, verse 8 to 10, the people had responded together, we'll do everything God says. They were scared silly. Yes, we're going to do everything God said. And Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come down in a dense cloud that the people can hear me speaking with you. And then they'll always put their trust in you. And Moses told the Lord what they'd said. And God said, go to the people and tell them to concentrate consecrate themselves today and tomorrow. And the third day, I will come to them in the sight of all of them on Mount Sinai. You go on in that chapter, chapter 19 and verses 14 and following. When Moses had gone down from the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, for he set them apart. He told them, wash your clothes. Make sure you're ready. And he said to them, prepare yourself, because the third day, God's going to come down on the mountain. And on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a great dark cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in a fire. The smoke billowed up like it was smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain moved and trembled, it said, and the people trembled too. They trembled violently, Scripture says. And the sound of the trumpet of God grew louder and louder and louder and louder. And Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him with thunder. Was this a preview for you and me of his second coming? First Thessalonians chapter 4 says, according to the word of the Lord, we tell you that we who are still alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep and gone on before us, they're going to be there and going to see Him when He comes again, together with you and me, if we're still alive at that particular day. And the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And then we, which are still alive, if you're and I alive at that point in time, you and I will be caught up together with them in the clouds 
and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. John wrote in Revelation chapter 19 of this. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to God. I'm reminded again this morning that when Jesus comes a second time, and He's going to come, it will not be a somber, quietly hidden occasion. Everyone from the beginning of time is going to rise from the dead and the living, and we'll be made aware of the coming of Jesus Christ. Mark says, and I noticed this again this last week, looking of it. Mark says in chapter 13, verse 27, and then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Everybody is going to be there when Jesus comes again. In that moment, when he comes, there'll be the understanding of the immense blunder the Jewish nation it will dawn upon them and they'll realize that they crucified the king of heaven it will dawn upon some people that they've rejected the God the very God of creator who made heaven and earth and even each one of them individually and suddenly a multitude will realize their impending disaster in the lake of fire or hell itself. A concept which so many have doubted and ridiculed will then be an occasion of immense stress and grief. If you're living in the light of the moment of Jesus coming again, if that truth is dawning upon you and you know you've got family members, children, grandchildren, friends who are unsaved. Did you pray for them last week? Did you pray asking Jesus somehow God get hold of their hearts and lives and pull them into the kingdom of God? Somehow God get hold of my kids and my grandkids who don't know you, who don't follow you, and bring them into the kingdom of God? None of us know the moment of his return. I'm not suggesting we do by any stretch of the imagination. But we know that when he comes again, we need to be ready. And the result is that event, when it takes place, will settle the destination of every man, woman, boy, and girl who's ever lived in the whole earth. There is no purgatory. There is no second chance. Let me ask you this morning. In the light of his coming, are you concerned for those folk that you know that aren't saved? I traveled in missions for many years, and often people would come to me at the end of a service when we would have an altar call and would pray. 
And they would tell me, and I've had it told me a dozen times, Paul, I pray for our missionaries every day. I would reply, wonderful. Who did you pray for? I pray for all of them. Where? In Asia or Europe or South America or whatever. I pray for all of them, Paul. Well, who are they? And they'd answer, God knows. I just pray for them all. It really meant they didn't pray for anybody any day. I know God knows everybody. But are you and I concerned? Do you have a prayer list of people who have not yet opened their heart to Jesus? They may be family members. I think we all have family members like that. Or children, or grandchildren, or business associates, and we go on and on. Ones whom you would want to see in the kingdom of God, who you pray for every day, If you just say, God bless them all, you know who they are, you're really not concerned. Perhaps it would do well to have something like a three-by-five card or a whole list of people whom you pray for every day. You say, that'll take time. Listen, Jesus is coming again. We can't risk things. He's really coming again. And when he comes, the opportunity of repentance will be over. So, do you know somebody who needs prayer? Will you pray for them diligently, boldly, persistently? Because the fact is, are you living in the light of his return? John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him. And when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. I think it's a rather sobering thought that Scripture says it's possible that we could be ashamed is coming. Ashamed because we've never prayed, really prayed, for those who we know don't know the Lord, who are not yet saved, who will in that moment face an eternity in hell. And if, and I don't know it's going to happen at all, but if they will be able to see you at that moment, everybody's going to be there. So I don't know why they shouldn't. And they look at you and say, why didn't you pray for me? Why didn't you intercede for me? Let me ask you this morning. Are you living in the light of his return? Because he is going to come back. No question of that. The second one, and there's another slide, please. Here's the second challenge. Are you living in the light of the judgment day? Ready to report to Jesus personally. Ready to report to him personally, but remembering that he knows everything. You can't 
fudge in that day. You can't tell a little white lion that day. He knows everything. But are you living in the light of judgment day? The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Or Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, says those who fear the Lord, listen to it carefully, those who feared the Lord spoke with each other, and the Lord listened to what they said. Oh! When you talk to somebody else, the Lord listens. If I really believe that, if you really believe that, we'd be much more careful in how we talk. In his presence, there is a roll or a scroll of remembrance, Malachi says, written to those who feared him and loved to think about him. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, said, do you love to think about him? But 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 says, now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Evidently, some Christians are going to be ashamed when they see him face to face. Romans chapter 14, verses 10 to 12 says, we'll all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, said the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess so then, each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. You won't have to account for me, and I won't have to account for you, but we'll have to account for ourselves. And no one on that moment and that day when we stand before the judge of all the earth will we be able to say, I didn't know I had to report to Jesus. Scripture's told you over and over again, you have to report to Jesus. Are you living in light of that moment when you are going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of what you've done in your life. The whole purpose is clear. Paul writes in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, it'll bring to light the hidden things of darkness. It will reveal the counsels of our hearts and everyone's praise will come from God. I'm reminded of the two verses I gave you last Sunday, which I've thought about a great deal this week. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 3. But you know me, O Lord. You see me, O Lord. And you examine my heart's attitude toward you. Or Proverbs chapter 6, verse 2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Attitude and motives are difficult words to handle every day, I think. And they'll certainly be difficult to handle when we stand before him, unless we've been a paying attention to them in our daily lives. We know he's not going to condemn us because of sin, because Romans 8, chapter 1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation to them in Christ Jesus. However, 
The purpose of judgment is to examine a Christian's total life, obviously from Scripture. Sin and indifference in the Christian's life continually rob us of serving the Lord, which will eventually mean a loss of rewards because we've not been used for His glory. And that's why Paul exhorts us in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Sin and indifference in the loss of, is the loss of power in our lives. And sin grieves the Holy Spirit and causes us often to pass up opportunities for service which we would otherwise been rewarded for. And the greatest consequence of unfaithfulness here and now is that it disappoints Christ. We need to live in the light of the fact that we all have to report to Jesus. Does living in the light of His judgment cause us to pay attention to how we live day by day? Will our daily activities be such that at any moment we'd be happy to welcome the appearance of the King? Does the reality of such demonstrate our citizenship in the kingdom of God? The third slide, please. The third challenge is, are you pleasing self, but missing heaven. Second Timothy chapter 4, for a time will come when men will pass up sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires. They're going to gather around them a great number of teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myth. The amazing thing is that some people just don't pay attention to the Word of God and don't avail themselves of what God has provided for at Calvary. Malachi chapter 3 verse 16 says, and those that feared the Lord talked with it, and the Lord listened to them, and a scroll of remembrance was written in His presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored His name. Revelation gives us a sad picture. Anyone whose name is not written in the book of life, chapter 20, verse 15, anyone who's not written in the name of life, the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The focus by the truth and the light of this means that I and we and each of us individually need to pay attention. And then if we're not serving Jesus Christ properly, we need to change our way of life, so that we'll fare well at the judgment seat. There's still time this morning, thank God, for us to change. And if you're not paying attention to the Word of God, if you're not living for God, you're simply tossing it out, tossing the Scriptures aside, because you want to please self. Remember, when Jesus returns a second time, and He's going to return, Will you be caught at that moment, having not accepted Him as Savior and Lord, and be in danger of eternal 
separation from God. Read the words of Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Therefore God has exalted him and given him place high above every name, that at his name every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. There is coming a day when every person who has ever lived will have to bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you don't live moment by moment in faithful submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, beware of eternal hell. Oh, you say you shouldn't talk about it. Listen, that's Bible truth, whether I like it or not. Remember, for Jesus to be Lord of your life means you must accept him and give him control of your life in totality. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole soul, spirit, body be kept blameless at the coming of Jesus Christ. Paul makes it very plain that the whole person is made up of spirit, soul, and body. He wants, Jesus wants to be Lord of our spiritual life and our physical life. The inner sanctuary, the spirit of soul, contain the mind and the emotions and the will. And it's our spirit and soul by which or in which we think and we choose and decide and dream and plan. And battles are fought and lost or won in the battleground of our private life. Is Jesus the Lord over these areas of your life? Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20, do you not know that your body, and I've added the word, so don't say it's not scriptural, I've added these words, should be the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And in light of the judgment day, let me ask you, is it time for you to surrender to him? And perhaps even this very moment, Surrendered him so that you'll not miss heaven altogether. The fourth challenge, and we've got a couple more slides, challenge number four, please. In the light of the fact that every one of us will die, or perhaps before, we'll be caught up to meet him in the air. Because we don't know the moment of his coming, but he's going to come. Are you ready to finish the race and receive? crown from Jesus? The Apostle Paul said to Timothy and probably to Titus as well, who were very young in age compared with the old apostle, 2 Timothy chapter 4, the passage which we were given, he said, I fought a good fight. This is Paul speaking. I fought a good fight. I finished the race and I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearance. Is that true? Have you longed? 
do you long for his appearance? Paul declares the very focus of all preaching must be that Jesus is coming back again. And he declares very clearly in Scripture that there are crowns laid up for those who absorb sound teaching who long for the second coming of Jesus. The Lord had reserved for Paul, and in fact reserved for all true believers, a crown of righteousness. The Lord was not Paul's to cease. He didn't earn it, but his faithful service and his confidence was that God would prove faithful in providing a crown to all who faithfully awaited his appearance. He was simply stating his confidence in future rewards. Paul undoubtedly would credit God with helping him complete the struggle and the finish of the race. The Lord was one who had accompanied and strengthened and preserved Paul all along the way. And indeed, all the glory belonged to the Lord. Paul would have certainly agreed with that. Becoming a Christian, you see, is relatively easy. You have to acknowledge to God that you're a sinner and receive from Him the free gift of eternal life, which Jesus provided by His shed blood. You can't work or do anything to qualify salvation. God gives it freely to those who recognize their need and trust in Christ alone. But then comes the hard part. And I suggest to you that the hard part of a Christian life is continually growing and developing as a Christian in the world. A world that is hostile, hostile toward God and toward His people. A world that constantly dangles in front of you. All that the world offers in opposition to the things of God, of course. From within, the flesh entices. You want to gratify the desires of sinful flesh. We're all the same. The enemy hits you with temptation after temptation, and the real test of your faith is, is it going to endure? Paul says, I've undergone lots of challenges and I think of the Apostle Paul, he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And I spent a day and the night in the deep. And I doubt if our challenges have or probably ever will compare to Paul's. However, the genuine faith in Jesus Christ will enable you persevere into the finish line. The Christian life, you see, is a marathon. It's not a hundred-yard dash. Finishing a marathon, well, is not easy. But the Apostle Paul was such a man. This passage tells us that when Paul was going to cross the finish line of his life, he was crossing it with energy to spare and he now speaks to Timothy, who seems to be kind of losing steam, and he exhorts him, come on, come on, come on, keep running well. In our text, it's clear that Paul was facing physical death. 
His worst, I think, must have called Timothy, who is a much younger spiritual companion for so many years, to burst into tears when he first read them. But these words must have sobered Timothy with the reality that Paul, in that really relay race of life, was now ready to hand the baton to Timothy and Titus. You've all seen or been in relays race, and you know how they run one after another, and somebody comes to the line where he's to stop, and the guy in front of him begins to run, and the guy behind puts the baton in his hand and says, run, keep going. Now it was Timothy and Titus's time to finish well. And the Bible said a crown awaits. Folk, let me suggest to you this morning that in the relay race, somebody is ready to hand you or if you're aged and going on maybe to glory one day soon, I don't know, you're running the race and you're coming to that point where you're going to hand the baton on to somebody else. Folk, I want to suggest this morning that the baton has been handed on to you. And in light of the final moment, finish well. Four challenges. Challenge number one, in the light of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and he is going to come, live for him. And daily pray by name for those who are not saved, for your family, for children, grandchildren, friends, and so on. That does make a difference again and again and again because God oversees that situation. Challenge number two, in the light of having to report to Jesus personally and give account of your life. Remember to so live, so on that day, you will not be ashamed. Challenge number three, in the light of the real possibility of spending eternity in hell, turn to him today and find him as your Savior and your Lord. And challenge number four, in light of the end of your light or in, in light of the time when your race personally is going to come to an end, Run and finish the race well, and you're going to receive a crown. I want you to remember this morning, the baton has been handed to you to keep running until Jesus comes. And he is going to come. Let's pray. Father, we bow in your heart, in your presence this morning. We recognize that you are coming. And we recognize again this morning that in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ, not only do we need to live, but we need to pray for others that they may find you. We recognize again this morning, Lord, in light of your coming, that when we have to stand before you, not one of us, Lord, wants to be ashamed when we face you. And Lord, teach us to remember that in the light of your coming, we need to be ready now because if we're not and we face that day and we've not found you, we're going to spend an eternity without you. 
And God visually grant us this morning the prospect of somebody running and they're handing the baton to us to continue the race. Father, you're the God who from everlasting to everlasting, who has loved us with an everlasting love, who gives us everlasting life, God, support your people now with the everlasting arms in these days until Jesus comes again. And may the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep restore your soul and lead you in the right path, and walk beside you in the dark valley, and bring you safely home to the Lord. Amen. And amen. God bless you. And as you go your various ways today, and throughout the rest of the week, don't forget, Jesus is coming again. God bless you, and make the Word of God real. And remember this week to pray for your pastor that he'll recover totally and be back with us. Maybe God bless him next Sunday. God be with you and bless you and give you a good week and may the word of God dwell richly in your heart.